America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to recognize a fact about our constitutional system. Yes, we have a right to freedom of speech, to have the government stay out of efforts to shut us down. But there is no right to bully and harass. That's something that uh, presidents of the leading, some of the leading colleges and universities in the country have not learned or at least not internalized. Uh, There were unbelievable hearings today uh, of embarrassing nature. We will get back to that in just a moment. Uh, But the idea that there is no right to bully and harass, that's the title of the most recent column by David Frum, a former... Uh, White House aide to President George W. Bush, a best-selling author, author of 10 books. He is also a staff writer for The Atlantic and part of their special issue in what a Trump second term would look like. Uh, David wrote a piece called The Danger Ahead. Uh, David, congratulations on both of these important contributions to public discussion. Thank you so much. and What a pleasure to be back on the show. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, One of the points that you make is that President Trump, and and this is according to everyone who knows him, everyone who is close to him, uh, and and even to his allies, he has spent a great deal of time concerned with defending himself from, what is it, a total of 91 charges for which he's been indicted, uh, federal, state, local, all over the place. He's concerned about winning some of these court battles. Uh, Why is it safe to assume that among his first priorities as president would not necessarily be the border or even drilling for oil, as he said last night to Sean Hannity, but his very first priority would be to stop the prosecutions that are ongoing against him? Isn't uh, that job one for a new Trump administration? He'll have no choice about that. So it'll be um, January of 2025, and let's assume that Donald Trump emerges from the electoral process as as the next president. Um, He's going to be – he's got two sets of federal charges, two sets of state charges, um, criminal charges. He's also facing a New York State civil action um, uh, against his companies that um, could leave his companies completely dissolved. So – and he's going to be – those charges are filed. They may be a trial. He may already have been convicted of one or two of them. Um, he may already be facing the sentencing phase of um, of his of his trials. There's no rule that says a president who's been convicted of a crime. If you're convicted of a crime, you can't be president. Um, people have run for president from uh, from prison, and if they'd won, they presumably would have been president in prison. So that's going to be his number one problem. So what he's going to have to do when he takes over is find some way to shut all of that down either by firing prosecutors or giving orders to the Department of Justice to stop the cases or pardoning himself. And those are actions that during Watergate led Richard Nixon to be forced out of office, a president using his power to stop a legal proceeding. Okay, what you say um, from Trump uh, himself and the people around him, we have a fair idea of a second Trump administration's immediate priorities. Number one, stop all federal and state cases against Trump criminal and civil. Number two, 
pardon and protect those who tried to overturn the 2020 election on Trump's behalf. Now, does that mean all those people who were part of the J6 choir for the best-selling uh, record album that uh, President Trump released? Trump's often said he's going to pardon everybody. One of the questions he's going to face is, will he pardon himself? You know, the Constitution is not doesn't say much about this question. It gives the president the pardon power. It mentions that in two different places in the Constitution. Um, and it, but it doesn't say anything about can the president pardon himself. And so uh, Trump is going to try it. But just I want people to think about what this means. If a president can pardon himself for a federal crime, that means a president in a bad mood can pick up a pistol, walk to the first lady's bedroom, shoot her dead, and pardon himself. Now, that can't be right. But an even more crazy result is if a president can pardon himself, it means that the vice president can get a pistol, walk into the Oval Office, shoot the president dead, become president, and pardon himself. Now, people say, well, Congress could impeach him and maybe even remove him, and I'm sure they would under those circumstances. But still, there'd be no criminal liability for the, the murder of the first lady or the murder of a president by the vice president. Those answers cannot be right, and so the president can't have that power. This this idea of the uh, vice president, president killing the president sounds like an idea for your next novel <laughs> it's too farcical it's too silly it's too absurd it can't be true um but uh, we're, we're, these are the kinds of debates we're going to have you know and so when you say what do you worry about in the second trump term um i i wrote before the first trump term about the risk of president trump abusing power and trying to build a more authoritarian presidency but I'll tell you, as we face the second Trump term, I'm worried about chaos. I'm worried about a breakdown of the presidential power. I'm worried about the United States being convulsed with these arguments. You know, we face a world of incredible dangers. Uh, Venezuela try, is trying to annex half the country next door in order to steal its oil fields. China, uh, Iran, uh, the, the, the horrors in the Middle East, uh, Ukraine. And we will be helpless because the person who's in charge of all of these problems will be consumed with his own legal problems. And uh, uh, what do you make of the fact that uh, uh, he says that his talk about being a dictator for one day is only a, a, a good humor joke? Yeah. Well, the thing that Trump often workshops some of his worst ideas as kind of jokes. I mean, look, part of, there's no kidding. Part of his appeal is he's got this. He does have a great comedic timing and a comedic beat. I mean, you often think he, he should be at the Friars Club in 1962. He's got that old-fashioned um, sense. And, and uh, it, it reminds you of the way people used to make jokes in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then when he's trying on a really scary new idea, he does it in that same kind of Borscht Belt idiom. And then when people say, that's scary, he's, oh, no, he can walk. I was just, that was just a joke. I was just I was making everybody laugh. But um, he's thinking about it pretty obviously. Do you think he's thinking about pulling America out of NATO seriously? Um, he, he, he tried that in the first term. But, you know, you don't have to go through the mechanics of pulling the United States out of NATO. All you have to do is say, as he said when he was running for president in 2016, say it as president, if Russia attacks Estonia, I won't defend Estonia. Well, um, the whole NATO, it, it comes down to the president. That if Russia does attack Estonia and Estonia attacks Article 5, yes, it's supposed to be the United States that helps Estonia, but it means the president. The president gives the orders, and if the president omits to do that, Estonia doesn't get defended, and NATO's dead. Uh, you, uh, you also say that um, uh, one of the things that uh, Trump 
would uh, list as a priority for a new term would be to send the Department of Justice into action against Trump adversaries and critics, including? Yes, including General Milley, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, including um, former President Biden, um, including he's got a long, including I think uh, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Is one of his targets. Oh, Bill, Bill Barr, list. Hillary Clinton. Oh, Bill Barr. That's right. Yeah. And so he's got a long list of these people. Now, what will happen in reality is half the Department of Justice will resign. And what will happen in reality when he starts telling the military to do things is generals will, will resign. I mean, he's going to give the military orders that are illegal. You know, you've heard people say on air Trump would invoke the Insurrection Act. Oh, yeah. And, and people, what people don't understand is the Insurrection Act was a law passed during the George Washington administration. Before there was an FBI, before there was any professional police, at that time the United States had militias at the state level and an army. And the Insurrection Act of the George Washington administration said if the local militias fail, it's possible to use the army because that's the only thing we've got. But since the George Washington administration, there are a lot of laws passed about what the military can and cannot do. And they make it pretty clear the military can't act as a police force. Okay, we will act as a police force just in terms of timing and move over to the question of a right, a constitutional right to bully and harass. This came up with the college presidents today. We'll have more with David Frum of The Atlantic Magazine. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, not quite in the spirit of the holiday season, but maybe you could say it's in the spirit of Hanukkah, uh, which uh, begins uh, Thursday night. It begins tomorrow night as the first night of Hanukkah. But uh, Hanukkah is about basically standing up to corrupt, arbitrary authority and uh, authority that... uh, Basically, at its very core, was anti-Semitic a long time ago. And uh, today, there is a um, confrontation ongoing uh, today and yesterday. Uh, Presidents of uh, University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, and MIT were answering questions from members of the House. And they were asked a, a very tough question. I'm seeing with David Frum of Atlantic Magazine, former White House aide to President Bush, George W. Bush. Uh, and uh, David, is is this a very, very tough question for people to answer if you were asked, uh, does your university rule allow uh, people calling publicly for genocide of uh, Jewish people? Is that a you complicated question? You wouldn't think, but in fact it was. Um, and three university presidents weren't able to answer it. And they're obviously highly intelligent people. They're obviously highly credentialed people. So you have to ask, if you can't answer such a straightforward question, what's stopping you? Um, and the answer is that, is that at universities and in many other progressive spaces in the art world and so on, there is a culture of ritualized, performed, symbolic violence against Jews and Jew, uh, Jewish people, Jewish places. Um, that's, that's the way the game is done. And the, the university presidents know that if they had said, if they'd answered uh, straightforwardly to these questions, they would have been condemning powerful institutions on their own campuses and creating inter- internal trouble for themselves when they got back home. 
What powerful institutions on their own campuses? Well, there is, um, when you see people behaving in these outrageous ways against you, you think, well, where do they get these ideas from? I mean, the, these ideas, this behavior doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from the curriculum. It comes from the way people think. It comes from the way um, uh, the, the whole university system is, is set up to um, advantage some and disadvantage others. Let me give you two examples, both from MIT. In, in 2021, MIT invites a distinguished but young um, climate scientist to give a lecture about new developments in climate science. Uh, this is going to be a very big thing in this guy's career, and he accepts very eagerly. Um, then it emerges that in a completely other context, he had written an article saying he disapproves of affirmative action in admissions, a position held by a majority of Americans. And he, it's not an extreme or outrageous place, and he didn't publish it anywhere, anywhere weird. Um, he, is, he is disinvited from the university, from the lecture, because the university says our commitment to this principle is so strong that even if you, it's got nothing to do with your lecture on climate science, you're disinvited. So two years later at MIT, there's a pro-Palestinian demonstration, and they break one of the most important rules that MIT has, which is no protesting at the main gate to the university. MIT is located in a busy urban area. Um, traffic is, is a real consideration. You can't disrupt the entrance of the university. That's a rule. The Palestinian students violate the rule. They're warned if you continue to violate it, you will face suspension. Uh, they continue to violate it, and, some, and they, are, they, they are threatened with suspension. Being suspended for a non-academic offense means that if you're a foreign national, you risk losing your visa. So you're a foreign national, and the university then backs down. It does not enforce its own rule because it says we don't want to risk the visas of these pro-Palestinian students. So the rule, so a professor is punished for violating no rule, and students are protected for violating one of the clearest rules the university has got. It's baked into the system that the rules don't depend on what you do. They depend on who you are. That's a, a, a remarkable contrast. A, uh, uh, what do you think about the uh, headline says donors and alumni demand that Penn's president resign over remarks at the hearing? The problem with that is, uh, was she any worse than Claudine Gay, the new president of Harvard? Uh, they they all seemed utterly incapable of answering any of these questions. I don't know that one was worse than the other. I didn't watch every minute of the hearings. Um, but I, I do think that till now, um, university presidents have had a clear set of incentives that there are a lot of things they do that they privately think are kind of dumb. But they know, look, if I do it, um, I don't I, I, I will be safe. And if I don't do it, I will be in trouble. And so I think one of the things that is happening in this, this um, as this behavior has become so extreme on campuses is university presidents are facing. Hey, the larger world is paying attention, and you can't just appease your most extreme internal constituencies. You had a national constituency too, so um, you have to. And, and so, I think it's the only way to get real change because these universities can't generate change from within. That's pretty obvious. You were you were talking about uh, uh, off the air, and I'm uh, I hope you'll be able to talk about it on the air about your son who is at university, uh, uh, and you can say where if you want to, but uh, about your son who is actually striking out against some of this hypocrisy. Yeah, I, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, he uh, went to Swarthmore, which is a small liberal arts college um, in Pennsylvania, and um, with very, very liberal sensibility. He's not at all a political person. He's interested in um in, in sports mostly, <laughs> and he does. He produces podcasts on true crime. He's not a political person, 
Um, but uh, he got a letter from his university president saying, you know, you've probably heard about some pretty extreme activity. We can't do anything about it because of our commit, our deep commitment to freedom of speech. It's worth more. And so he wrote her, the president a letter and said, when I was there for four years, let me just itemize the ways in which people I knew were punished or prevented from speaking freely. We have no culture of free speech. So, you know, if, if you can punish frats for advertising certain kinds of parties in ways you don't like, how is it you can't stop or do something? How come the right calls for genocides of Jews? Those are protected by free speech. <laughs> for one margarita night, not protected by spe- free speech, but kill the Jews, protected by free speech. Did he get a response? He did not get a response. Not yet. <laughs> we well, so Swarthmore is a small school. By the way, do you remember the uh, one presidential nominee who was a proud graduate of Swarthmore College? Oh, you're going to stump me. It's Michael Dukakis. Remember him? I, I do, but like, I, okay, I, I pay a lot of money for Swarthmore. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Dukakis. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just, I, again... So much of this. William Henry Harrison, you know. <laughs> right. Well, he was only there for a month, so he's easy to forget. Uh, uh, David, uh, what's next? You're working on a memoir. Oh, yeah, but my next article's for, um, the, my next article's for The Atlantic. I've got two coming up in quick succession. One is going to be about how um, if the price of saving aid to Ukraine and saving aid to Israel and saving um, aid to allies in the Pacific is for the Democrats to yield to the Republicans on immigration reforms that they say they want. Why don't you yield to the Republicans on immigration reforms you say you want? I, what, what, uh, I, I get that it's a, it's a bad habit to yield on completely unrelated matters, but if that's the price of saving Ukraine, uh, maybe you should pay it. Well argued, as always. David Frum uh, will link to his most recent two articles and more coming up on The Medved Show about the uh, confrontation between Republicans in the House and college presidents. Coming up. The Michael Medved Show. Medved Show, one of the headlines from today uh, coming up is uh, during questions from Stefanik, that's Elise Stefanik, the third ranking Republican in the House of Representatives, uh, presidents of Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, uh, which was founded, by the way, by Benjamin Franklin. So, I mean, Penn has some noble traditions and <laughs> a president who doesn't seem to remember them. But uh, an MIT, uh, those three universities, all refused to condemn calls for genocides of uh, Jews. Now, I I thought this was over, that the idea of defending genocide against Jewish people uh, kind of ended up in the scrap heap of history based upon the experience of Adolf Hitler. And... It is unbelievable that we've come to this situation. Uh, Elise Stefanik is 
uh, very aggressive and very effective in her line of questioning here. Listen. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm gonna give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of anti-Semitism? I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. When it and is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So the answer is yes that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It does not <laughs> depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. It is unbelievable. Why couldn't they say yes? And... <clears throat> To say that, uh, and what they would could then go on to say is that the specific chants that actually do amount to calling for the genocide of Jews, uh, like the only solution intifada revolution, there there was a genocidal quality to the previous two intifadas because it was aimed at Jewish people and thousands were killed. Uh, and again, if she had asked the question, if uh, someone is doing uh, chants and uh, uh, posting uh, signs with slogans that called for genocide against uh, gay people or genocide against black people, uh, what about that? I mean, because there's a special... 
sensitivity to Jews because the major victims of the greatest genocide in in human history, uh, a third of the Jews in the world during the Holocaust were killed. They were murdered. And you're talking about millions of people. People know very famously, six million people of 18 million Jews who were alive in the world at that time before the Holocaust. So there's sensitivity. The the better analogy here uh, would be, would it violate Harvard's code of conduct to go up to a black organization or social club or just a uh, even a black group of friends and to start chanting back to slavery, back to slavery? What do you think would happen? I mean, what do you think there would be any hesitation in the president of the university actually responding to that more effectively? I mean, this is an unbelievable situation. It is an unbelievable situation. And, uh, and then meanwhile, when you talk about an unbelievable situation, there's the uh, latest from the squad uh, because with all of the other challenges and difficulties we have and the inability to get some kind of compromise at least or some kind of satisfaction for some of the Republican demands, which are positive and reasonable about tightening security at the border and more effective policing of the border to prevent illegal entries into this country. Why can't you do that and then authorize the money for Ukraine which the whole world knows that we need to provide, and the money for Israel, which is waging a war against the one of the most deadly terror organizations of the current moment. In the midst of that, Ayanna Presley uh, is uh, concerned about voting rights. Not that voting rights aren't important, but what does it mean to her? It means giving criminals the right to vote. Yeah, really, listen. This is clip seven. That's why we're here today, to introduce the Inclusive Democracy Act, a historic, brand new, first of its kind bill that will end the stain of felony disenfranchisement in America and guarantee the right to vote for incarcerated, informally incarcerated citizens. Our bill is a reflection of bold, progressive, democratic values. Because with Republicans and the Supreme Court stopping at nothing to undermine voting rights and to exclude black and brown folks from participating in our democracy, we must do, we must be just as relentless in protecting and expanding access to the ballot box, including for incarcerated citizens. Okay, for people who are currently incarcerated, people who are in jail uh, should have the right to vote. What if they're in jail for uh, hate crimes. What if they're in jail for hate crimes against the black and brown people that you say you are representing? Uh, Ayanna Presley, the Congress lady from Massachusetts, member of the squad, also uh, has to say that the age of Jim Crow is not behind us. Uh, we will get to that on the Michael Medved show. Uh, there is more, and also a um, a question from the National Women's Law Center president, who says that uh, female athletes 
uh, should learn to lose gracefully to biological men. Now, how does she maintain her position as uh, president of the National Women's Law Center? We will get to that and more coming up on The Medved Show. Wake up, people! The Michael Medved Show. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Actually, the idea of snow (laughs) doesn't seem as frightful for the weather outside as the drenching rain that we've been subjected to. Um... More than our share already this winter here in the Seattle area. Uh, Meanwhile, subscribe today to our new Substack newsletter, Michael Medved's Context, placing today's big events in the perspective of our past and future. We have a special series about uh, lies, mistakes, and misunderstandings about the Middle East. And uh, uh, check it out, and you will be first in line to hear about big, great, substantial news regarding The Michael Medved Show. Just go to michaelmedved.substack.com and sign up today. Uh, We were listening before to Ayanna Presley, the congresswoman from Massachusetts, who is a member of the so-called squad, along with, uh, uh, obviously, Alexandria ocasio Cortez and uh, Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and the rest of them. In any event, she's uh, talking about providing voting rights for incarcerated citizens and also for teenagers as young as 16. Is that what we need? Look, you don't have to go along with uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who wants to raise the voting age to 25. But lowering it to 16, uh, why is that an appropriate step to take? If you think it is, by the way, if you're in favor of it, you can call 1-800-955-1776. She also says, Ayanna Presley, that uh, Jim Crow is not behind us. Listen. The civil rights movement did not begin and end with Rosa taking a seat, John crossing a bridge, and Martin leading a march. We are still in the civil rights movement, and Jim Crow is not behind us. Jim Crow is not behind us when state legislatures and extremist courts act daily to disenfranchise us and to silence our votes. Jim Crow is not behind us when bills like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act are not the law of the land. And Jim Crow is not behind us when the former occupant of the White House can lead a violent insurrection and still run for president while nearly five million citizens can have a criminal record and not even cast a ballot. Jim Crow is not behind us. Our democracy is on the line and the stakes could not be higher. And let's understand that what Jim Crow involves is the idea that you can't ride in the same train car as somebody of a different race. You can't ride on the same bus. You can't go to a different restaurant. And Jim Crow is behind us because we have a whole body of civil rights legislation 
most of which was originally passed under a Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, much of it before Lyndon Johnson, with Republican help and support, helped to put an end to Jim Crow to make it illegal. And uh, by the way, is it uh, Jim Crow to say that uh, biological men shouldn't uh, compete in female athletics? Uh, The president of the National Women's Law Center, whose name is Goss Graves, says that uh, female athletes have to get used to losing. Can you believe it? Uh, Here's what she had to say. Success in school sports depends on a whole range of factors, including how hard you work and coaching and access to really good resources and facilities. And trans students participate in sports for the same reason as their kids, because it is fun, because it creates belonging and community, because it teaches so much about persistence and leadership and and discipline, unless they learn to lose gracefully, hopefully, and often they learn to win with dignity, hopefully. Um, They learn to do the sort of work that means you have higher grades and stay connected to school. I want every kid to have that chance, to have the chance to play. Okay, again, to say that people play uh, with the biological gender that they are, it does not take away their right to play. It uh, any more than it takes away the right of uh, uh, people who are openly and cis female uh, to uh, go ahead and say we want to compete with males in sports. That doesn't happen very much. Uh, speaking of competing and sports and more. The Senate, in a single stroke yesterday, approved 425 military promotions after Senator Tommy Tuberville, a former football coach at Auburn, uh, Senator Tuberville of Alabama ended a months-long blockade of nominations over his opposition to a Pentagon abortion policy. Tuberville had been under pressure from members of both sides of the political aisle to end his holds as senators complained about the toll it was taking on service members and their families and on military readiness. President Joe Biden called the Senate's action long overdue and said that the military confirmations uh, should never have been held up. In the end, this was all pointless. Senator Tuberville and uh, the Republicans who stood with him needlessly hurt hundreds of service members and military families and threatened national security. Uh, he was objecting to a Pentagon policy, which none of the people who were blocked by him had anything to do with. They didn't favor that policy. They didn't shape it. They were just literally good soldiers and waiting for their promotions to go through. Uh, Senator Tuberville, outside the Capitol building, spoke about uh, his uh, very belated, but finally it's their uh, willingness to step aside and allow promotions to go through for 425 Army and Navy and Marine Corps officers. Here's Senator Tuberville. It was pretty much a draw. I mean, they didn't get what they wanted, we didn't get what we wanted. And, you know, just when they when you change the rules, it's hard to, it's hard to win. And so they changed the NDA rules 
we didn't get to fight for it to leave it in the Senate. And so just unfortunate the American people didn't get a voice. Do you mind just stating what you said off camera real quick, just what's the happen? What just happened? Yeah, just like a Well, we're camera. going, I'm releasing everybody. I still got a hold on, I think, 11 four-star generals. Everybody else is completely released from me. Now, somebody else might, I think some, a few other people got holds on one or two or three people. But other than that, it's over. Thank All right, you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, basically, he said in another interview uh, that uh, we didn't get everything we wanted. What did you get that you wanted at all? Uh, I mean, this was entirely negative, and I think it made Republicans look incredibly bad. Uh, incredibly bad. And most Republicans, including people like uh, uh, Lindsey Graham and uh, John Thune and many others, had been begging Senator Tuberville to back off on this process. And uh, it seems to me that it's glad that it turned out. He was adamant that he did the right thing for the unborn and for our military by fighting back against executive overreach. He expressed no regrets but admitted we didn't get as much out of it as we wanted. He got nothing out of it uh, because this had to do with a, an army policy, which I do think is a bad policy, which is offering to pay for people in uniform uh, who need to travel from uh, a state where abortion has been banned to another state where it's permitted. And it seems to me that that is a policy that is right to challenge. But then you can do something about it by focusing on that policy, not on punishing people who've worked their whole life to advance uh, through the ranks and to actually serve their country. Okay, coming up tomorrow with 40 days until the Iowa caucuses. Isn't that incredible? There are a group of Trump voters who were surveyed by CNN who say they're looking for alternatives. Uh, We will get to that story uh, next time on the Medved Show. And uh, why is it that the president of South Korea... Uh, not South Korea, the dictator of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, was crying visibly, publicly, in front of thousands of people because he said the women of his country aren't having enough children. Uh, And we'll talk to David Drucker of The Dispatch, who's going to be at the debate in Alabama tonight, starting at 5 p.m.